is Monday, December 4th. The time is 5.06 p.m. Please note that the ringing and use of cell phones, pagers, and similar devices is prohibited. Please be advised that the chair may order the removal from the meeting room of anyone using a phone or similar device. Public comment will be available for each item on the agenda. For comments on matters that are not on the agenda, there will be an opportunity for general public comment. Participants who wish to comment will be asked to come forward one by one and speak clearly into the mic. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to speak. Alternatively, members of the public may submit public comment by email to environment at sfgov.org. Commented submitted via email will be forwarded to the commissioners and will be included as part of the official file. I will now call the roll. President on. Here. Vice President Juan is excused. Commissioner Bermejo. Here. Commissioner Hunter. Here. Commissioner Sullivan. Here. Commissioner Tompkins. Here. Commissioner Yuan. Here. President on, we have a quorum. All right, the next item is the consent calendar. This includes items two through four. So we'll start with the president's welcome. The Commission on the Environment acknowledges that we occupy the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytushaloni peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. We recognize the Ramaytushaloni understand the interconnectedness of all things and have maintained harmony with nature for millennia. We honor the Ramaytushaloni peoples for their enduring commitment to Warep, Mother Earth. As the indigenous protectors of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. We recognize we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland, and as uninvited guests, we affirm their sovereign rights as First Peoples and wish to pay our respects to the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community. As environmentalists, we recognize that we must embrace indigenous knowledge in how we care for San Francisco and all its people. Commissioners, department staff, members of the public, welcome to tonight's meeting. As we begin our final commission meeting of the year, it's a good time to take stock of where we are and contemplate of the path ahead. This past year marked a period of transmission, tra transition for the commission and the department. As a commission, we welcomed uh, two new commissioners, of course, Tompkins and Yuen, and then also bid farewell to two longtime colleagues as well. Mayor Breed also selected Tyrone Ju as our next Environment Department Director, and we're excited to hear more about his vision and priorities uh, this evening and in the months ahead as part of the city's budget process. If one thing's for certain, 2024 will be a decisive year. Just last week, the UN declared 2023 to be a hottest year ever, a sober sobering benchmark that has become far too common. We're also on the cusp of a crucial election year, one that will shape the future of our city and our nation for years to come. Two process items is, first of all, the following uh, practices of the Board of Supervisors and recommendations of the Mayor's Office and City Attorney's Office. We'll no longer be having public comment in our commission meetings, remote public comment, I should say, in our commission meetings. Of course, we're gonna continue our in-person comment, and we still very much want the public to participate as they have in the past. And second item is uh, Commissioner Sullivan has graciously agreed to fill in a seat on operations with uh, Commissioner Wan being on sabbatical. So I'll be appointing him to be a temporary replacement uh, in the January committee so that that committee can carry on. Uh, and finally, as we contemplate the year ahead, let's stay energized and not lose sight of the task at hand to advance climate justice and make sure we do it in every corner of the city. San Francisco is counting on us. With that, let's get started uh, on the next item. Uh, commissioners, I am very pleased to not to have to say goodbye to anyone or bring anyone up for goodbyes. Uh, we only have new additions to the team. Uh, so I'd like to invite up those that are in person. 
to come on up to the mic. We have uh, Simone Koskinen-Diaz, who's our new environmental education coordinator. We have Skylar Siemens, who's our clean transportation intern. And we have Maxine Schultz, who is our residential toxics reduction associate. And we have two online, but I'll let the in-person pe in -person people introduce themselves first. Hi, commissioners. My name is Skylar Siemens. I'm currently working as a clean transportation intern at San Francisco Environment Department. Um, I'm mostly working on the e-bike pilot with for delivery drivers with Anna Ciaruto, and I'm also helping with other clean cities tasks like updating the website and sending out the newsletter, and I'm getting my master's at USF in environmental management. Thank you. Hello, um, I'm Maxine Schulte. I'm the new Residential Toxics Reduction Associate. Um, very recent college grad with a background in conservation biology. But here at the department, I'm excited to be learning more about household toxics and hazardous waste. I'll be overseeing the retail collection program. Nice to meet you. Good evening. My name is Simone Koskinen-Diaz. I'm the new Environmental Education Coordinator working on the school education team. Really excited to bring these topics to our youth as a native San Franciscan and really excited to be on board. Right. Thank you. And joining us remotely, we have Edna Aguilar, who is a clean transportation intern. Edna? And uh, Director Dude, seems um, Edna is having a technical issue. We do have Kevin Kumitaka joining right. us remotely. Uh, so you uh, heard a presentation from Kevin Kumitaka at your last meeting. Uh, pleased to announce that he's been promoted to our green business coordinator uh, within the department. So Kevin, if you're available and ready to join. Hello, commissioners. Uh, good to see you again. I was uh, I presented at the last commission meeting. Kevin Kumitaka, my pronouns are he, him, and I've been promoted from the uh, green business specialist to a green business coordinator position. Really happy to continue my career and expanding growth at the San Francisco Environment Department um, and continuing work expanding uh, recruiting and recognizing businesses in historically underserved communities in San Francisco and reaching out and diversifying the representation of our program to match uh, the business community in San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. And if we don't have Edna, uh, that concludes our additions to the environment team. So welcome to everyone who's joining us. So assuming we're not hearing from Edna, maybe we should move on then to item number four, which I believe is approval of the minutes. I'm hoping commissioners have had a chance to review the minutes, and if so, can I have a motion to approve them? So moved. Okay, and we have a motion from Commissioner Hunter. Second. Second. A second from Commissioner Tompkins. Um, with that, we should go to public comment, I believe, because we've all consolidated this into a consent calendar. That's correct, President. Are there any members of the public who wish to speak on items two through four of the agenda? If so, please approach the podium. And seeing none, public comment on items two through four is closed. Okay, please call the roll. President on. Aye. Vice President Juan is excused. Commissioner Bermejo? Aye. Commissioner Hunter? Aye. Commissioner Sullivan? Aye. Commissioner Tompkins? Aye. Commissioner Yuen? Aye. All right, the motion passes unanimously. Uh, next item, please. All right, the next item is item five, presentation on the International Council on Clean Transportation, ICCT, San Francisco Cost-Benefit Analysis by EV Charging Typology Report. The speakers are Nicole Appenzeller, Senior Clean Transportation Specialist, Environment Department, and Logan Pierce, Envi Electric Vehicles Associate Researcher, ICCT. 
explanatory documents are the ICCT, San Francisco Cost-Benefit Analysis by EV Charging Typology Report, and the ICCT, San Francisco EV Market Direction Memo. This item is for discussion. Great. Good evening, everyone. And Kyle, should I just say next slide uh, for the slides, or what's the preference? Just one moment. Great. Well, hello, hello again, commissioners. Uh, my name is Nicole Appenzeller, and I'm a senior clean transportation specialist at the department. I'm really happy to be here today, and I am joined virtually by Logan Pierce, uh, and from the International Council on Clean Transportation, and we're really excited to share the results of a project we just wrapped up last month. Um, so, uh, next slide, please. To start, I wanna share the goals that drive our clean transportation work. Our EV work is driven by our climate action plan goals, which are rooted in transit first, but also provides a framework for strategic electrification of the sector, given the urgency of the climate crisis. San Francisco has set a goal that by 2030, vehicle electrification will increase to at least 25% of all registered private vehicles and to 100% of all by 2040. Expanding access to affordable and convenient charging options will be the primary way that the city supports these goals. Next slide, please. So based on these EV goals, we worked with the International Council on Clean Transportation in 2020 to develop a charging demand study to project how much charging we would need to support new electric vehicle adoption. That study found that we need over 1,700 public chargers by 2030 to support EV adoption. And as of November 2023, we still need 570 more public chargers to meet our projected 2030 demand. You can see public level two totals and public DC fast charger totals noted on the slide. Level two charging refers to chargers that use 220 or 200 volts, 240 volt service. Uh, like think of what your dryer machine uses. And level two chargers can provide a full charge within six to eight hours. They can be installed in homes or at commercial sites. DC fast chargers are higher powered chargers that use at least 480 volt service. As a result, they cannot be installed at home, but are found at commercial sites and are popular along highways. And DC fast chargers can provide a full charge within 30 minutes. In addition to these public chargers, the study found we need over 3,000 workplace chargers. With workplace chargers, um, the totals are harder to track as these chargers are not always available to the public. So we are currently assessing ways to improve the tracking of workplace chargers and may need to revisit workplace charging goals based on the changes to workplace commuting caused by the pandemic. Next slide, please. And now I wanna turn it over to Logan Pierce, who's joining remotely, just to introduce himself and the project. Hi everyone. Um, thank you for inviting me to participate in today's commission meeting. My name is Logan Pierce, and I'm an electric vehicle associate researcher at the International Council on Clean Transportation, or the ICCT. Um, the ICCT is an independent nonprofit organization that conducts unbiased technical and scientific research to advise envi environmental regulators on how to best meet their transportation decarbonization goals. We were excited to partner again with the SF Environment team to build on our 2020 charging demand analysis. Um, for this project, we worked with SFE, SFMTA, and SFPUC 
on a new EV network build-out analysis to determine the most cost-effective way to increase EV charging infrastructure given the city's limited resources. The first step for the analysis was a memo examining the current state of the EV market, as well as battery and charging technology, to determine if the city may need fewer public EV charging stations. We found that reduced battery and vehicle costs, continued technological advancements, and supporting policy actions are driving continued EV market growth. As a result, charging demand is not estimated to decrease, and in fact, a lot more charging uh, will need to be deployed to meet the city's EV targets, as Nicole just laid out. Um, the second step of our work was a cost-benefit analysis by EV charging type to assess the cost-effectiveness of different charging types. We are excited to share the results of this analysis with the group and to help inform San Francisco's future charging investments. Um, I'll be available for the Q&A portion at the end of the presentation, and now I'll turn it back to Nicole. Great. Thanks, Logan. Next slide, please. So for the cost-benefit analysis, ICCT assessed several different charging types. And we know that our charging network needs to include more than one charging type because different charging types serve different needs. Single-family and multifamily home level two charging was assessed, and both of these charger types serve those residents with dedicated off-street parking. We also assessed residential curbside level two charging as that charging type could serve residents without dedicated off-street parking. And this is extremely important in San Francisco as we have a high percentage of residents who lack access to overnight parking at their homes. For this study, commercial curbside charging was not assessed as there are currently too many competing interests for commercial curbsides. And finally, we have public level two charging and DC fast charging. These public charging types can serve commuters, residents, and visitors. And DC fast charging can also serve fleets since fleets typically desire a faster charge time. Next slide, please. So our overarching question was, what is the most cost-effective way for the city to reach its transportation electrification goals? And we examined this throughout the report. I wanna highlight some of the key findings. Next slide, please. The ICCT analysis identified three major factors that influence total cost for chargers over a 10-year period, excuse me, charger and installation costs, power costs, and utilization. Charger and installation costs refer to the cost of the equipment and all costs associated with installing it, which, which can consist of labor, permitting, material costs, and taxes. Power costs refer to the cost to operate the charger, and utilization relates to how often the charger is used. The more a charger is used, the faster a site may be able to see a return on investment. Next slide, please. So looking at these three different charging types, you can see some key differences. For charger and installation costs, Capital costs for DC fast charging are more than 10 times that for level two charging. And those DC fast charger costs are about 14 times more than level two for grid upgrades. When we think about power costs, DC fast charging and off-street level two costs more per unit of electricity because they typically charge during peak electricity times. While residential curbside level two charging is cheaper because they take advantage of off-peak electricity times, like thinking about charging overnight. And for utilization, DC fast charging and off-street level two have an average of five hours of daily utilization, while residential curbside level two has an average of nine hours of daily utilization because people wanna charge closer to home. Next slide, please. And uh, one key cost consideration um, that, can we go back one slide, please? One key cost 
consideration I want to point out is trenching costs. Now, trenching is, involves digging underground to place electrical conduits, and these costs are very site-specific. They have the ability to highly impact installation costs, so whenever possible, sites should aim to mitigate those trenching costs, and one way they can do that is to place the charger as close as possible to the source of electricity. Uh, and this is especially important as we think about curbside charging and bringing that power to the curbside, which might not be there already. Next slide, please. Now, changes in utilization affect the number of chargers needed by type, and thus the overall citywide infrastructure costs. And the value proposition for investing in different charging types can change depending on typical usage. Now, this slide shows the average 10-year infrastructure cost per kilowatt hour or unit of electricity for different charging types with changes in utilization. As shown, when utilization is increased, when a charger is used more, the average 10-year levelized cost per unit of electricity is dramatically reduced. For example, the blue line shows how curbside chargers that are used one hour per day have a levelized cost of about 77 cents per unit of electricity over a 10-year lifespan compared to about $0.09 cents per unit of electricity for curbside chargers that are used nine hours per day. So as you can see by the graph, the more that a charger is used, the lower the prices kind of come down, and that lowers your overall cost of the charger over a 10-year period. Next slide, please. We also found that there were two San Francisco-specific cost considerations uh, that we found were going to be important during the study. For SFPUC-served sites, PG&E controls the process for grid upgrades and determines costs on a project-by-project -project basis. That means sites served by SFPUC, including our city-owned sites, must work through PG&E for upgrades and yet are not eligible for most of the ratepayer-based programs that charging developers typically leverage to fund these upgrades. Um, in short, they're not eligible for the same types of incentives um, through ratepayer-based rate programs that are realized when working with PG&E just directly in PG&E surf sites. Additionally, the San Francisco Fire Department has implemented new fire sprinkler safety requirements for EV charging installations in enclosed garages that can affect project costs. We're hearing from the industry that some companies are beginning to drop projects because of the high costs to comply with these requirements. And we are collecting cost data and speaking with industry stakeholders to collect more information on these challenges. So we want to make sure, as a city, we're not setting up barriers for ourselves. Next slide, please. Ultimately, the study found that there isn't just one type of charger that we need, but we need all types of chargers to meet our city's goals. We found that utilization is key to cost effectiveness and enabling a return on investment. Deploying residential curbside charging has important implications for total costs and can increase consumer convenience and access to lower energy costs. And finally, San Francisco projects may be affected by unique costs that could increase total cost of ownership. But uh, coming out of this study, we wanted to share a couple of our next steps. So next slide, please. As part of our next steps, we continued collaboration with SFMTA and SFPUC to explore multiple grant opportunities for EV charging projects. Uh, over this year alone, we've seen over 75 million in grant opportunities come, become available for electric vehicle charging projects. And through looking at these grant opportunities and identifying opportunities to apply, we found that a lot of electric vehicle service providers are interested in partnering with the city and oftentimes bringing funds to 
provide match funding or fund full projects 100%. Additionally, we also found that EV service providers see garage pay gates as a barrier at SFMTA garages. They identified that paying to park and then paying to charge was a barrier for drivers, which resulted in companies not wanting to pursue charging projects in SFMTA garages. So we took that information back to our cross-agency team to think about how we can use it moving forward. Next slide, please. One thing that we are moving forward um, with SFMTA leading this project is a new curbside charging feasibility study. So they're going to be evaluating the feasibility of bringing curbside to San Francisco, and that involves reviewing how that would work operationally, enforcement-wise, payment-wise, and where those charging sites might be distributed within the city. And this study will um, be included with a design to actually pilot, uh, excuse me, a pilot that will be designed to actually put some chargers into the ground. And this study is planned to be wrapping up next summer. Next slide, please. Uh, we also are pursuing an opportunity with an electric vehicle service provider called Revel for one of SFMTA's largest garages and have worked with them to submit a proposal uh, for a new fast charging project that would bring 30 fast chargers to the fifth emission garage. So working with SFMTA on their site, they've identified this as a garage that could help serve some of our most underserved communities as well as um, as well as reviewed uh, the payment structure for the parking so that validation could be used as a way to entice EV drivers to use the charging without having to pay to park. And that application has been submitted for power, so it's an SFPUC's court, and we're waiting to hear back about the grid upgrade costs. Once we receive those estimates, we'll identify if there's a funding gap and be prepared to leverage grant funding if needed. And so we're really excited about these next steps that we're taking both on street and off street and just want to go to our next slide and open it up for any questions. Yes, Commissioner Sullivan. I have a few, so you know, <laughs> indulge me. Um, but first, I'm, I'm really happy to, to see the report and to see that uh, that the city has kind of collectively decided that curbside charging is a good idea. Um, I think that's been up in the air for a very long time, so I'm very, very happy about that. Um, anybody that's ever used an, an electric vehicle knows that a lot of the time you get to a, a curbside charging spot and there's a gas car in the, you know, or there's an EV and you have no idea whether it was fully charged two hours ago. So this may be like way too early to ask this question, but other cities have done this. Do we have a, what are they doing to ensure that if we're doing this in residential areas where parking is so scarce that you'll be able to actually get into one of those spots? Yeah, so we've been talking to the cities of Los Angeles and Seattle, and with our consultant moving forward, we'll be including some research from other cities. What we've heard in terms of enforcement um, are techniques to uh, apply a fine 
um, and, and ticket uh, drivers that are using the spot outside of uh, allowable hours or um, for a site that is marked as EV only with an internal combustion engine vehicle um, using the space, then they could be fined. So it's been early stages for these other cities, but now that we're connected, we're interested in learning what their best practices are and applying any of their lessons learned to our project at the beginning. So we'll be interested to work across agencies here too to see what the enforcement schedule could look like. And we're always interested in having a positive experience when it comes to EVs. So we'll make sure to be providing outreach and education around any policies before they go into place. Got it. And the pilot is expected to be done by the summer of 2024. Right? The study is expected to be um, done by the summer of 2024, and that would feed in directly to a pilot. So the idea is that there wouldn't be a, a gap between the study and the pilot. Right. Um, then a couple of detailed questions. So the, the fire department in early 2023 put forth an administrative bulletin to require sprinklers in, in garages with, with EV charging, or with EVs, or which, which is it? With EV charging. Charging. And, and the city passed a law, I believe a couple of years ago, to require garages, public, publicly accessible garages, have a certain percentage of, of um, charging. So how does, the, how does the fire department's requirement kind of overlap with that, with that part of our law now? Are, are those garages still required to do those percentages, but they just have to incur the cost of the, of the sprinklers now? Yes, so there is um, some overlap. So we do require that uh, for new construction or renovations that the percentage of EV charging has to go in. And now this will be in place with the fire department's administrative bulletin as well. So they will work hand in hand. You know, with SFPUC, who's also implementing the incentive for the charger expansion for those sites, they're aware of this uh, requirement as well. So we're working with any stakeholders that we know within kind of the multifamily uh, charging space to ensure that we can collect cost information so that we can under understand exactly how much they may have to pay uh, in order to meet the requirements of the fire administrative bulletin. But I, something that one of my colleagues who's here today too could speak in detail about it, Barry Hooper mentioned to me today is that as part of the requirement around the multifamily sites, um, they can put in a lower voltage uh, plug, just kind of a standard plug that would be running on 20 amps that would meet the requirement of the EV charging uh, policy, but would not require additional fire safety. So there is a pathway right now for those sites to meet the requirement of the EV charging numbers, but not have to satisfy the requirement of the, the sprinkler. So uh, the sprinklers are not applied to every case. That kind of came in under the radar a little bit, this administrative bulletin, and it could be a big deal in terms of a barrier to, to, uh, to EV charging. So are, other, are you aware of other cities in California that have imposed similar requirements? No, um, kind of based off of our initial research, our uh, requirements seem to be the most stringent. So what we're doing is we're reaching out to our network of other, 
through our Clean Cities Network and our other networks to identify other California cities and cities outside of the state, like New York, that might have you know, a similar dense population um, to understand what their code requirements are and collect information there so that we can have additional conversations with the fire department and make sure that uh, we can identify what the impacts are from a cost perspective and policy perspective. Thank you. Um, I also wanted to ask about the, the, um, the unique cost for EV charging in San Francisco. Um, no, sorry, this, this is the PG&E uh, extra costs um, to the city because we are a WDT customer. Mm -hmm. um, and that was going to go to FERC for a decision in 2023, and then there was going to be a final decision in early 2024. Is there any update on that? There's no update on that. We're working closely with SFPUC to continue to track that and see how it applies to future charging projects. So that's something we are tracking as we know that the cost implications can be quite high. Um, and then last, last question. So the, your slide started out with goals for, um, for San Francisco electric vehicles by 2023. 25%, that's... Um, that's not the registrations for, for, for 2030. That, that's all the cars in the city by 2030 are expected to be EVs, or we want them to be EVs by then. Um, and so my question is, what's, what's the percentage? And you may not have it off the top of your head, but what's the percentage now? If 2030 is our goal, 25%. Do you have any idea where we are now? I'll have to follow up with you on that. I don't want to misspeak on it. Um, but uh, we, I can share out the number of what our current registration numbers are, and then that'll be something that we're looking to track on our website that Skylar and team are updating so that we can have that publicly available more often. No further questions. Great. <laughs> Thanks very much. This is a great, great, uh, great, for the great development. Comments or questions? Well, thank you for the presentation. Great. I just want to thank Logan for joining from the East Coast. Thanks, Logan. Um, I believe we have to take public comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who wish to comment on this item? This is item five. Good evening. Now, Maria, I only do this on the record, but it's interesting, by the way, that this commission on the environment, which is so important, is not on the record by SFGov TV. Should ask the question. Same thing with the, the one on the technology. The two things, you see, boom, boom. So I'm sorry, guys. I need to totally uh, dissent, I mean, be uh, against everything I heard. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I know you don't have a choice at this point. You need to you have you feel you have to follow this machine that is leading us absolutely clearly. If you have a vision towards absolute slavery, there is not such a thing, guys. You listen behind. I hope as, for example, clean power. This doesn't exist. No emission. It doesn't exist. Or is the electricity is produced. One, how do you make your batteries? Two, how do you recycle them at some point? Three, this is a total joke. 
did you ask the trees how they feel about being cut of carbon dioxide? I don't think you asked, because they love it, and they give us oxygen in exchange. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to not be too uh, outraged, but don't ever think, please, to finish here, that you won't be held responsible for what is going to happen, because this is going to be extremely hard to stop, slow down. But you will be responsible. You will know it, because I just told you, actually, right now. Last thing to finish, sorry. So basically, you charge your thing. I mean, everything is electric, right? And if you don't comply with anything you are told using your ass phone here, yeah, you're cut. You are no more part of the society. That's the future. That's what they are aiding for. It's just to let you know in case you didn't understand yet. Okay, please uh, at least uh, get awareness a little more of the responsibility here you have in your hands with the whole thing. Thank you very much for your attention. Are there any additional members of the public who wish to comment on this item? Again, this is item five on the ICCT report. Yes. Hi, I'm Jim Boyer. I uh, had a comment about the EV charging situation. I was in uh, Monterey about two months ago, and as far as the city parking garages are concerned, they, uh, Monterey had a great idea by uh, having your car charge while you were there, and uh, it would be free parking while your car is charging. Once your car has reached 100% or whatever uh, charge they allow, you would be uh, charged 50 cents every 15 minutes if you don't vacate the garage. And that would be uh, something that I'm sure the charge companies would be happy to see. They can actually access the garages and they can also supply that charge and not be added uh, uh, and attract more people to those charge stations. And so I thought that was a great idea. And uh, by the way, I got out before it got 50 cents, so that was good. And then also the, uh, the uh, uh, charge stations, uh, is there going to be something about uh, solar panels on each charge station? And that's my last quandary. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. And see no additional callers in the queue. Public comment on this item is closed. Thank you. Uh, next item, please. Great. And uh, before we proceed to the next item, just a reminder for uh, presenters and commissioners to please speak into the mic so everyone can hear you. Uh, the next item is item six, review and vote on whether to approve the annual municipal green building, or green, by green report, rather, for calendar year 2022, the speakers are Dr. Shoba Iyer, by Green Program Manager, and Valerie Vines, Municipal Toxics Reduction Assistant Coordinator. The expandatory document is the annual municipal green by green report draft. This item is for discussion and possible action. Great. Hi, everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, tonight, we'll be sharing some updates about our by green program activities. I'll wait for the slides to come up. Thanks, and next slide, please. Let me first introduce our bi-green team to you. 
My name is Shoba Iyer, and I'm a Toxics Reduction Environmental Specialist here at SFE. I have two environmental analysts on my team, Gabriel Hernandez and Valerie Vines, both of whom joined my team within the last few months. And our Buy Green team also includes Soko Made and Annie Wong, who are on the city government zero waste team. Next slide, please. Let me give you some background information here. So the Environmentally Preferable Purchasing Ordinance is Chapter 2 of the San Francisco Environment Code, and it requires the city of San Francisco to ensure that purchases of commodities and expenditures of public money are made in a manner consistent with its human health and environmental policies. I mentioned in our last slide that our municipal toxics reduction team works with the city government zero waste team to implement this program, and that's because of the role of the resource conservation ordinance. And this ordinance requires city departments to minimize consumption, maximize resource recovery, and purchase products with recycled content. One of our mandates is to annually review and report on city departments' progress towards full compliance with the Environmentally Preferable Purchasing Ordinance. And another of our mandates is to produce an annual Buy Green report. This report is one of the meeting documents available on the webpage for today's meeting. And I encourage you to take a look at that report for some more details on our Buy Green program activities. We do have a limited amount of time in our presentation today, so we'll cover some highlights here, but you'll find more detail in that report. And at this point, I'll turn the mic over to my teammate, Valerie Vines, who will tell you about our data analysis on selected municipal purchases in the 2022 calendar year. And we can stay on this slide for a moment. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, and thank you, Shoba. And myself, along with my colleague, Gabriel, helped prepare this year's annual Buy Green Port. For the 2022 cycle, our team chose to review uh, products for paper and lighting-related purchases, taking both data availability for purchasing as well as comparison opportunities into account when selecting these products to evaluate. Next slide, please, Kyle. Here we're looking at results for white copy paper compliance. Our series of graphs will feature department names on the y-axis, and in this case, we're seeing departments that spent over $10,000 each on copy paper last purchasing year, with total spending on the y-axis annually, or x-axis annually. And the data represented in this graph comes from Staples, which holds our current citywide contract for office supplies. By regulation, compliant purchases of white copy paper specifically need to contain 100% of post-consumer recycled content, and over 15 or only 15% of the more than $450,000 spent last year in 2022 were compliant. Our main hypothesis for this low rate is lingering pandemic supply chain issues, as well as we learned that a local paper mill producing recycled pulp for recycled papers had a fire in October of last year, which can explain some but not all of availability issues since compliance was low year round. Next slide, please, Kyle. We've got slightly better news in the other paper category, which includes colored copy paper, stationary photo paper, among others. And to be considered compliant in this category, products need to contain 30% or more of post-consumer recycled content. Of the $30,000 total spent last year, 26% of these were compliant. And as with copy paper, we think that this relatively low compliance could be explained by, by supply chain impacts. Next slide, please. Finally, I'll end on our high note with lighting products data, featuring an average of 70% compliance across city departments. 
The data represented here come from our citywide industrial suppliers contracts, primarily Granger, rather than explicitly lighting-based contracts, since this is what we had data access for. Compliant products analyzed in the lighting category include any light bulbs, fixtures, et cetera, that use LED technology rather than fluorescent or others. City purchasers spent over $100,000 on lighting within these industrial supply contacts, contracts last year, uh, again, with 70% overall annual compliance. Thanks for your time, and I'll pass it back to Shoba to wrap up. Great. Thanks, Valerie. Uh, we do have our analyses of city departments purchasing data available on our Buy Green dashboard, and Gabriel is our technical lead with updating and managing that dashboard, and you can find a link to it in the Buy Green report. Next slide, please. Here I'm showing you some activities I have in mind for the coming year. Uh, we'll work on building and maintaining our relationships with city staff who make or influence purchasing decisions. Um, as I mentioned, I've got a new team, um, so there's new folks here, and there's also new folks in other city departments too, so I think it's really important that we spend some time to connect with other city staff and learn about what might be the barriers in place to green purchasing that departments are facing and consider solutions that limit or avoid the inclusion of uh, harmful chemicals in municipal purchases. We'll continue to build collaborations with our external partners, such as the Responsible Purchasing Network and the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council. And our team will also explore some potential alternative approaches to collecting and analyzing municipal purchasing data. Next slide, please. It's time now for some kudos. So as part of our reporting process, we identify a municipal colleague or department to be the recipient of our Buy Green Award, and we're very pleased tonight to award our colleague uh, Gloria Yuen with the Office of Contract Administration the Buy Green Award for the 2022 reporting year. Gloria's been a truly fantastic partner and collaborator with our Buy Green team, and she's incredibly valuable in helping us enforce the environmental requirements that are part of contract language. And you can see here in the slide a photo of Soko and I presenting Gloria with her well-deserved award last week. Um, I invited Gloria to come join us tonight and say hello, but she was unavailable to join, but she's very appreciative of the award, and we're both mutually looking forward to continuing our collaboration with each other. Next slide, please. Thanks so much for your attention. Our Buy Green email address is here on this slide for anyone who wants to reach out to us, and I welcome any questions or comments. Oh, yes, just real quick one. Um, this program, can it be rolled out possibly to the SF Green businesses as well? Do they have these resources available to them? Is there any kind of mandates or um, suggestions for that? Yeah, so what I know is that there, often when it comes to our purchasing requirements, like for example, cleaning products or disinfectants, um, we'll start rolling out those um, suggestions and then requirements within the city family, with city departments, and then the Green Business Program does um, take those recommendations and shares them or with businesses, and I know some of them are requirements for businesses as well, so there is crosstalk there. Yeah, Shoba, thanks for the presentation, and the, the graphs were really helpful to convey a lot of information with one glance. The, you mentioned that 
supply chain issues were a, a big, the biggest factor in uh, adoption when it came to, comes to the paper um, slides that you sh that you showed. Um, but there were s some departments that got to the 20s, mid 20s, and others were at zero. So there must have been other things as well. Can you talk about other other issues that might be there for for departments that are in the low the low numbers? Yeah, so Valerie is my technical lead on that. Do you have some commentary you can add there? Of course. Uh, I think it comes down to the products that the individual departments are purchasing. Um, Kyle, if we could um, move back to maybe slide five, four or five, with the other paper products title. Uh, police department, for example, had 0% compliance. And when we looked into the products that they were actually purchasing with those $3,000 going to other paper, uh, it was most thermal receipt paper, which I'd imagine is harder to find with recycled content due to the technical specs than just a regular copy paper type of thing. So moving forward, as our team becomes less new, we're hoping to sort of reach out with them and try and find alternatives. But I think it's the specs of the product individually. And one follow-up question. So this is the snapshot for 2022. Do you have any sense as to whether it's, do we do this in the past? Is it getting better? Are these percentages getting, getting better or flat or downhill? This is a particular downtrend. The last time we analyzed copy paper and lighting, both was 2020. And I believe we were at 92% compliance for white copy paper and 100% compliance for other papers. Uh, and I think this is where the supply chain issues come into hand. Luckily, we're spending right on par, uh, very comparable total overall spending numbers between 2020 and 2022, uh, which means that even after we've all come back into the office at least three days a week, we're not actually printing as much as we were before COVID. So I think that's a positive in terms of overall reduction. Um, just those industry issues and actually acquiring the paper through our contractor staples uh, has been the issue. Thank you very much. Did you have anything to add, or are you just waiting? No, uh, Any that more was questions Thanks, or Valerie. comments from commissioners? If not, we do have to move. We need a motion to approve this report. So perhaps if I could get a motion. I'll move to approve. OK, we have a motion from Commissioner Sullivan, a second. A second. A second from Commissioner Bermejo. And with that, we'll go to public comment then. Are there any members of the public in the room who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. Great. Please call the roll. President Anand? Aye. Vice President Juan is excused. Commissioner Bermejo? Aye. Commissioner Hunter? Aye. Commissioner Sullivan? Aye. Commissioner Tompkins? Aye. Commissioner Yuen? Aye. With that, the motion passes. Next item, please. Right, the next item is item seven, update on all electric new construction ordinance implementation and review of Department of Building Inspection Report on exceptions to building code section 6106A.7.1.1.17. The speaker is Barry Hooper, Senior Green Building Environmental Coordinator. The explanatory document is Board of Supervisors, file number 200701. This item is for discussion. Hello, Cindy. Hi. Good evening, Commissioners. My name is Cindy Comerford, um, the cl Climate Program Manager, and I'm going to provide uh, some brief context on uh, Barry's presentation. Uh, so in 2019, the department facilitated Mayor Breed's Zero Emission Building Task Force. And this task force had an executive committee, and then it had four other committees that looked on uh, new construction. It looked at existing residential buildings, 
commercial buildings and municipal buildings with an overarching goal of looking at how we decarbonize uh, the building stock. And so the outcomes from this task force um, were multiple different things. So one, uh, the building operations chapter of our climate action plan and our subsequent decarbonization roadmap was one outcome from this task force. And another outcome is that we co-created our all-electric new construction ordinance. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that ordinance, this ordinance mandated all-electric new construction and eliminated uh, the use of natural gas. Um, as part of this ordinance, there is a requirement within the legislative language that on an annual basis, we come and provide an update on any exceptions or waivers um, that have been given over the last year. So this ordinance was passed in the end of 2020, and it went into effect about six months later. So this is our second time coming and giving a public report on the update of the implementation of this ordinance. And so next, I'd like to introduce my colleague, uh, Barry Hooper, is, who is the Senior Green Building Specialist, to provide that update. Good evening, members of the commission. I'm Barry Hooper. Uh, please proceed, Kyle. Um, so as Cindy explained, the ordinance was adopted uh, back in uh, 2020 to advance uh, access to safer and healthier buildings as well as to uh, reduce carbon emissions. So the use of gas in our building stock affects you know, public health, public safety, the resilience of our community, and for that reason, uh, the ordinance was passed. Next slide. Um, the other major context is the use of uh, gas is the primary source of carbon emissions in operating our building stock. So since 1990, uh, the emissions from operating buildings across the city have declined more than, by more than half, so 58%, uh, but the remaining emissions primarily come from the combustion of natural gas, and building all electric is a way to ensure that that is not perpetuated in new construction. Next slide. Go ahead, one more slide, please. Um, and so the requirements of the ordinance are straightforward, uh, that if you're gonna build a new building, it can't have gas for any of the common end uses that gas would have been used for in the past. So heating, space heating, uh, cooling, lighting, that's quite rare, <laughs> uh, water heating or clothes drying or cooking. Um, there are, uh, it's a prohibition on the piping uh, and any any gas consuming equipment. Uh, next slide, please. <clears throat> um, we, of course, it's a, a part of the building code, so it's the building department that is primarily responsible for its enforcement, as well as tracking compliance with this ordinance and providing the data that we're gonna be going over. Next slide. Whereas in the environment provides technical support to a DBI, to, to local stakeholders, and ensures that San Francisco is prepared to, to comply. Next slide. <clears throat> there are some limited exceptions that are allowed under the ordinance. Uh, they are primarily, if there's an issue that is proven uh, with regard to technical invisibility, and I'll go into a little bit of detail about that on the next slide, <clears throat> or if there is a specific cooking process for a specific commercial cooking uh, establishment, gas would be allowed for that one process. Um, the ordinance could potentially be superseded by a pre-existing development agreement, and there are some limited circumstances where it's the federal government that sets the building code for a very small portion of our building stock. Next slide. 
um, so when we talk about feasibility, that's, there is quite a bit of detail to that, but there are four recognized potential circumstances where um, there could be an issue in the uh, re implementing regulations, uh, Administrator Bulletin 112, uh, recognize that it is possible to allow um, gas only in the case, again, of a physical or technical infeasibility where that issue would be affirmatively resolved by using gas. Um, and that has to be approved by a panel of engineers. Next slide. So specifically, the four circumstances that have been imagined are either a conflict with the state energy code, uh, a circumstance where a utility declined to provide the level of electric service necessary for an all-electric construction, a um, physical constraint in a small infill site, or and the last is essentially a catch-all, something that hadn't, hadn't been uh, thought of, but they'll still represent a physical or technical infeasibility that would prevent the building, uh, construction of the building from moving forward. Next slide. Uh, development is definitely slower at the moment under current economic conditions, but people are proposing to construct new buildings. So since the ordinance was proposed, there have been a total of uh, 290, uh, excuse me, 280 buildings, 290 proposals for new construction. Next slide, please. And there have been zero requests for an exception, uh, or for especially formal requests of the, uh, that would um, be considered by the panel of engineers. There have been two circumstances where a small uh, ADU, accessory dwelling unit, was uh, built as manufactured housing, so that, that is manufactured housing is regulated by the Federal Housing and Urban Development. <clears throat> uh, and in that case, uh, local ordinances of this sort do not apply, uh, but those are very small units on the back of an existing unit, and you wouldn't be able to take the same approach for an entire new development. Um, in general, though, uh, the other thing that we can see from the data is it takes some time between when a building application is submitted and when the architects and engineers designing the project get to the stage of the process where they provide this level of detail. So we have a limited set of buildings that really made it that far in the process, even in the first couple of years. <clears throat> Next slide, please. And I'd be happy to answer questions if there are any. Questions? Comments? This, I think we heard this presentation last year, and last year the the data was, I think almost all the data was don't know yet. Yeah. So it's good to see that we ha have at least 60 um, applications uh, that actually have gotten to an answer and 58 of them were, were all electric. So that, that's very good news, I think. Well, thanks for Thank that you. presentation, Barry. Um, let's go to public comment. Are there any members of the public in the room tonight who wish to comment on this item? All right, and seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. All right, next item, please. All right, the next item is item eight, presentation on the Environment Department's priorities for fiscal year 2024-2025. The sponsors are Tyrone Chu, Director, and Leo Chi, Deputy Director. The speakers are Lowell Chu, Energy Program Manager, Cindy Comerford, Climate Program Manager, Jack Macy, Zero Waste Program Manager, Shrada Mehta, Community Partnerships and Engagement Program Manager, Pauli Ohea, Toxics Reduction Program Manager, and Hannah Chun, Clean Transportation Program Manager. The explanatory document is the Environment Department Budget Presentation for Fiscal Year 2023-24. This item is for discussion.
Uh, commissioners, our budget process is right around the corner, and so this is a conversation we wanted to have specifically with the commission, especially be having two new commissioners, um, to make sure we could do a little bit of kind of priority setting and give you our thoughts as a team of where we're kind of focused on for the next year or two. Um, you were given information in your packet, uh, which included kind of a description and a more detailed description of each of our program areas and where their focus was over this past year uh, through the budget process. Um, and this time we're kind of getting a little bit ahead of where we, where we are usually with our budget process, which begins in January for our commission, um, where we hold our two, two public hearings. So we're gonna do something kind of a little bit different. We're gonna hold kind of a, an earlier discussion uh, to be able to answer any questions and also give you some insight into what direction we're headed over the next two years. Uh, so we can incorporate your feedback into the budget process a little bit earlier. Uh, the one thing I will note before I turn this over to Leo to introduce is uh, it's no secret if you've been paying attention to the news media that this is going to be a very challenging year for the city budget. Uh, to, today, uh, the mayor announced her mid-year budget cuts and mid-year budget cuts are typically not very common when it comes to our city budget process, um, but it is necessary when we have to make adjustments given kind of the economic recovery our city is currently, un that's currently underway. And so as a department, we were asked to also make uh, some reductions based on our general fund allocation, which we did and was included in those uh, budget cuts. Uh, but it gives that context setting. Uh, so there is not a lot of capacity to say, hey, we want X, Y, and Z, and nor will that be part of our uh, proposal that we bring forward to the commission this year. Uh, this is going to be a time of restraint, as I've been talking to the staff about, just in terms of how we use the resources that we've been allocated um, to move forward the work uh, the most efficient way that we can. Um, doesn't mean that we don't need more resources, it just means this is probably the time where we kind of tighten our belt and really advance the work um, centered around all of our goals. Um, one thing you will see in, in all of our program areas uh, that I did want to mention is we have this through line uh, through all of our work. We've heard this at every one of our presentations that we've given to the commission that our commitment to community around equity, around environmental justice, that's core to all of our program areas. So you're not gonna hear that repeated over and over again because it's just integrated into everything we do. So don't, don't take alarm at that, that we're somehow uh, not paying attention to it. Uh, secondly, in the interest of time, we're also not gonna go into elaborate detail over all of the different responsibilities for every program area, otherwise we would be here for a few hours. Um, but know that we have a whole host of day-to-day -day responsibilities to cover our obligations around our state and local requirements. You just heard about our Buy Green uh, program and the requirements of giving this report and having an adopted report by this commission. So we're gonna kind of truncate all of this uh, in the interest of time and in the interest of kind of giving you the highlights of where we're headed. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Leo, who's joining us remotely, uh, who's gonna share a little bit more about our calendar of upcoming meetings and get the presentation started. And if I may, um, one thing amongst the commissioners we might do is pause after each presenter to allow for questions from commissioners just to prepare you. All right, let's take it away. Deputy Director Chi, are you able to join us? Thanks, okay. 
Are you able to hear me and see me now? Yes. Okay, super. Thanks so much. User error. Um, if you can go ahead and uh, feel free to advance the slide to the departmental priorities. Um, so this is really um, a chance for our program managers to share with you um, what their um, priorities are for the upcoming years. And I know that the item was titled fiscal year, but we asked um, for program managers to be thinking about a one to two year time frame and think about what their uh, chief priorities were in that upcoming time frame. So that that gives you a sense of kind of the altitude that we were thinking about for this presentation. We included the budget presentation in the package from last year in order to give you a uh, a reference document that had a great deal of detail about each program. So if you had a chance to look at it in advance and you have questions that arise from that, that's fine. Otherwise, um, if you have a chance to look at it later, um, feel free um, because we can use questions and that thinking as we move forward in the budget process. Um, I think when I was thinking about this series of meetings initially, I was hoping that we could really use this as a time to hear about all of the commissioners' priorities before really entering into the meat of budget. But the reality is that we have had the mid-year cuts um, and budget is on everybody's mind. Um, just to expand a tiny bit on what um, Director Ju had already mentioned, the total for the city's mid-year general fund budget reductions totaled $75 million in the current fiscal year. And um, about 35 million is ongoing into the future. So the mayor did send a memo to department heads thanking them for their participation in this. But again, highlighting that um, I'm not sure exactly what this means, but they're projecting a deficit that grows to about $1 billion by fiscal year 2027 to 28, if no further actions are taken. So they're setting a context that they're seeing um, some ongoing structural imbalances that they will want departments to be part of solving. Um, we have such a small fraction of general fund that um, I think we'll be actively, you know, following the instructions, but um, it won't have the same sort of heft that it will for departments that are largely general fund supported. So that's the context that we're working with. I'm trying to, um, you know, I think I'll be asking our um, teams to just be thinking about how we can be efficient and try to make sort of technical corrections that are useful but might not have a lot of cost impact, really trying to be uh, an active participant with the way that the city moves forward, um, you know, respecting the, the overall situation that we're in while hopefully limiting the amount of departmental operational impacts that we will inevitably be seeing. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and hand off to um, one um, one program manager at a time, and you'll hear from me again when we get to the admin slides. But um, we're going to go ahead and move to climate as the first item for you. Thank you. Cindy, would you go ahead? I, I can't see the room, so please um, start whenever you're ready. Okay, I'm here. Good evening Super. again, commissioners. My name is Cindy Cumberford, and I'm going to talk about the climate program. So the climate program works to collaboratively with diverse stakeholders to aggressively and equitably reduce carbon emissions and other harmful pollutants while advancing environmental justice and healthy ecosystems. Um, if we go to the next slide, so many of our programs here 
work to reduce carbon emissions, not just the climate program. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the diverse teams that are part of the climate program. And so if we look at this slide, there's actually six different distinct teams that are part of this program. Um, so the first three, building decarbonization, healthy ecosystems, and circular economy, are really tasked with implementing chapters within the, um, within the climate action plan. So building decarbonization obviously focuses on removing fossil fuels from our buildings. Healthy ecosystems looks at uh, expanding biodiversity within the city and also manages the Urban Forest Council. Circular economy is something that we've kind of renamed uh, for this year. This historically was my colleague Eden Bruckman who worked on building material management. So we're expanding um, the breadth of that team and we just um, put it an, out an announcement to hire her position. So if you know anyone who would be a great circular economy coordinator, please direct them to our website. And then we have three programs, the Building Codes and Standards, Climate Action, Environmental Justice, that really spanned um, beyond just our team to the department. Codes and Standards, which you just heard from Barry, works on implementation of ordinances, but also providing support on building codes, um, not just to climate, not just to buildings, but things like zero waste and EVs. The Climate Action Team is tasked with facilitating our Climate Action Plan and also doing all of our reporting and monitoring on that plan. And lastly, our environmental justice team really is here to promote healthy communities and underserved um, areas of the city and really reduce the burden, environmental stressor and burdens on those communities. So if we go to the next slide, I'm gonna quickly go through our top priorities for this program. So the first is to start working on our 2025 update of our climate action plan with a goal of really being visionary and promoting San Francisco as a climate leader, but also making sure we have a keen eye on implementation and advancing racial and social equity. Our building decarbonization team is going to continue to develop policies with diverse stakeholders. Um, we're gonna work on either a residential or commercial policy. We're selecting that through a task force so we'll know more in January. And that team is also doing a lot of targeted outreach with affordable housing. Our environmental justice team had two big important grants that it will be implementing over the next two years. It will be working with a Department of Pesticide Regulation grant and also an EPA environmental justice grant, which is really, oops, that's my timer, three minutes. I'm gonna take 20 more seconds if that's okay, <laughs> very quickly. Um, and then the last three is our healthy ecosystems is gonna, has been facilitating great stakeholder engagement um, within the city of diverse groups and gonna look at um, a policy that really enhances biodiversity next year. We're gonna build that circular economy team to make sure that we can implement the, the newest policies around low carbon materials and reducing consumption. And the last priority that I have been championing is really around how do we fund all these programs? So trying to develop a sustainable funding source um, for our department, um, for community-based organizations, and to implement our climate action plan. So thank you. Uh, and then there's questions. We're happy to take questions after uh, each program area. Any questions on climate right now? Maybe just one. Yes. Um, Cindy, um, thanks for your presentation. Um, and I know the priority is to kind of work on updates in the next kind of year, two years to um, on climate. But I just wanted to ask you, if you, you know, the, the, the news this year about temperatures worldwide is just totally terrifying. 
um, if there's like one thing, is there anything that comes to mind in San Francisco for like if you could pull one lever or or do work in one area, is there kind of a, a high priority thing that could reduce carbon for the city, say by 2030? Anything? So I think that building decarbonization has shown to be really successful, and we actually know how to do that. Um, our biggest obstacle is probably financing. And so I think if we combine some of the building decarbonization policies with the financial policies, we can really make a lot of movement. And that's not to minimize any of the other um, policies. They're all equally important. But I think that could help drive down emissions. And we just have to really make sure we focus on environmental justice and also you know, making sure we still have a, a green and biodiverse city. Thank you. All right, thank you, Cindy. Thank you. So now I believe we're on to clean transit, transportation. Great. Good evening, commissioners. Um, I'm Hannah Troon. I'm the program manager for the Clean Transportation Program. And I'm not sure if the slides will up. Yep. But our program um, coordinates implementation of and administers several programs and policies that uh, advance the citywide electric vehicle roadmap, as well as support the sustainable transportation strategies of the Climate Action Plan. Next slide. So our programs um, host the San Francisco Clean Cities Coalition, as well as the Electric Vehicle Ombudsperson, both of which provide resources um, and technical assistance to both the public and city agencies on electric vehicle projects and charging projects. We also manage several state and federal grants um, to support electrification planning uh, and project implementation across several vehicle classes. Uh, and finally, we manage specific programs to encourage mode shift, uh, such as commuter benefits and emergency ride home. Next slide. So our priorities over the next couple of years to help advance uh, the work that we do include expanding publicly accessible charging infrastructure across the city, focusing in particular on disadvantaged and underserved communities and really leveraging their feedback in this planning process. Um, this includes both what my colleague Nicole presented on earlier today around curbside charging, feasibility study, and pilots, for example, um, as well as kicking off uh, some state-funded outreach uh, that we're doing in the Bayview-Hunters Point community um, to really understand needs and concerns there uh, before we start um, in, uh, deploying tr new charging infrastructure in that community that really serves their needs. Uh, second, we are working on um, expanding and doubling the size of our electric bicycle uh, pilot that's uh, currently in place, uh, and as well as developing resources that really demonstrate the um, decarbonization potential of uh, micromobility and electric micromobility, um, in particular sectors such as first and last mile trips and urban freight. And then finally, we're working to publish a citywide um, medium and heavy duty electrification, uh, vehicle electrification plan, focusing in particular on the needs of small and medium sized fleets and the city's municipal fleet. Thank you and happy to take questions. I don't see any. Thank you, Anna. Awesome. Thanks. Now we're on to energy, I believe. Good evening, commissioners. I'm Ryan Ramos. I'm a senior energy specialist with the energy team. I'm here on behalf of Lul Chu, our energy program manager. 
The focus of the energy program is to advance climate action by designing and administering energy efficiency programs that provide climate protection while reducing costs and energy burdens for all San Franciscans and beyond. Next slide, please. The energy program consists of many sub-programs. Our largest suite of programs is funded through the Bay Area Regional Energy Network, also known as BayREN. BayREN is a program administrator of public, public, public ratepayer funds. Its programs cover the nine-county Bay Area. The, department, the Environment Department actively implements BayREN's programs that support the development of increasing awareness of new electrification and energy efficiency codes and standards, planning retrofits for zero net energy municipal buildings, environmentally friendly refrigerant program or refrigerant management and electrification and energy efficiency retrofits in single and multifamily uh, buildings and small businesses. The energy program also co-implements the lead paint abatement program, also known as fixed lead SF. Uh, we do this in conjunction with the San Francisco Department of Public Health. The lead paint program focuses on removing lead hazards from homes, single-family homes and multifamily homes, prior, prioritizing those homes that have children. Finally, the energy program directly supports climate action and energy efficiency work of other departments within the city, such as the San Francisco International Airport and the Public Utilities Commission. Next slide, please. Among the important work uh, for the energy program, uh, the priorities include the following. Soft launch of the Bayren Refrigerant Management Program by April of this year of 2024, and then completing refriger refrigeration retrofits in 20 businesses by the end of 2024. Secondly, increase the number of hard-to-reach and underserved businesses served by the Bayren Small Business Program by 10%, and to decrease the cost by 4%. The program regulator, the California Public Utility Commission evaluates the Bayron Small Business Program based on cost effectiveness. Therefore, it is important for us to rein in costs while expanding the benefits of the program. Thirdly, as presented to the Commission in October, the Energy Team won $400,000 from the U.S. Department of Energy's Buildings Upgrade Challenge. This challenge seeks innovative solutions to rapidly improve efficiency and reduce carbon emissions from existing buildings. Therefore, the cash prize received will fund the development of implementation plan to install 200 heat pumps in 200 San Francisco homes in a disadvantaged community. Submitting the implementation plan automatically unlocks an additional $400,000 to stand up a small pilot program to test the assumptions and assess preliminary results. Thanks, and I'm happy to take questions. I've always appreciated the programs under energy. Uh, maybe just to confirm with you, do you anticipate the city's budgetary process affecting any of this work in the coming year? Probably not, because these are different sources of funding. Yes, uh, we do not anticipate that, as most of our funding uh, does come from grants and other uh, prizes, such as the DOE prize I just mentioned. So um, potentially with our work orders that we have with other city departments, we may see some reduction there, but that remains to be seen. Hopefully not. We should follow up with our departments. Yeah, that, that would be the, the one area where we're, we had the most exposure for the energy team is the work orders. So as all the departments are looking to make cuts, uh, work orders are obviously a place where departments are looking to scale back. What's the significance of identifying 20 businesses an item in the first priority? How did you land on that being something that uh, would land with some great results? 
I think the the main thrust behind that is to make sure we make some progress. And 20 does seem like a relatively modest number. However, the refrigeration management is a, a new area uh, for climate protection that uh, we anticipate there to be uh, some hurdles along the way. And so we wanted to set an attainable goal. Yes, I have a question regarding uh, bullet point number two when in increasing participation of hard to reach and underserved businesses. What are some of the tactics that you can use or that you have seen are successful to reach um, underserved um, businesses or hard to reach businesses? And how would you define hard to reach businesses? So hard to reach businesses, to answer that question first, is a uh, public California Public Utilities Commission defined uh, customer. Um, so basically, it, it falls under a number of categories, whether um, they use a, a certain amount of electricity, so a lower amount of electricity, whether they live in a uh, Cal Enviro screen disadvantaged community, uh, whether English um, or English is not their primary language. So those are three criteria for hard to reach. Um, in the past, we've run a number of different energy programs and work with community groups. So trusted advisors and trusted messengers are one way that we uh, utilize uh, our abilities to try to reach uh, these, this, this type of customer and user. I have a, a question that's not about the slide, but the, the plan to try to install 200 heat pumps in the city, um, do we have, are there any records or, or is there data about how many heat pumps get installed in San Francisco, does the department even have that? Or does anybody have that? The Department of Building Inspection, as long as the plumber has pulled a permit, would have that information. The type of heat pump water heater that we're planning on installing is a low-voltage heat pump water heater, which would not require uh, any sort of electrical upgrade. Uh, information specifically about that sort of installation uh, is pretty small. Uh, I, I don't believe that level of detail would be available. Um, this is a relatively new technology, uh, and so that we're really trying to promote this as it would be a much faster uh, kind of implementation of a, of a much needed measure to reduce carbon emissions. Got it. It, it seems like a really important um, step to take to reduce emissions in San Francisco to kind of encourage heat pump installations and I've heard just uh, anecdotal stories about it being really hard like you have to you have to check with four different departments and PG&E and, mm -hmm. and there's conflicts and wow we thought it was going to be fast but it's taking a long time um, I don't know if it'd be nice to, to have any kind of data on, on heat pump installations right part of the thrust periodically oh, sorry to sorry to interrupt but part of the thrust of this building up building upgrade challenge is to formulate and develop a delivery mechanism that reduces a number of these hurdles. So part of our um, mission with this prize money is to engage contractors, uh, homeowners, and other stakeholders to develop a mechanism which makes it easier because we have heard similar stories of the challenges in bringing implementation and making it more efficient. Uh, so it's certainly uh, one of the key areas that we were planning on studying. And again, the first phase of this prize is to create an implementation plan 
and that implementation plan will have studied a number of these issues that you had mentioned, Commissioner. Good luck with that. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll just reiterate that one of the keys is uh, we're trying to not require all of the grid upgrades, which make this a very costly endeavor for buildings to decarbonize. So uh, what Ryan mentioned is these are going to be low voltage or low voltage replacements that we can essentially get these conversions done on, on a bigger scale. So that's also why uh, we were awarded the grant, because this has the opportunity to scale more rapidly than if you're going to wait for electric upgrades at every single project you're not gonna be able to scale fast enough uh, with our building decarbonization. Any other questions? Great, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. All right, Toxus reduction. Good evening, commissioners. I'm Pauli Ojea. I'm the program manager for the Toxics Reduction and Healthy Communities team. Nice to be here tonight. So the Toxics Reduction and Healthy Communities team seeks to safeguard human health and the environment by implementing local policies, increasing public awareness, and offering services to safely manage hazardous waste and reduce the manufacture, use, and sale of toxic chemicals. Next slide, please. And so uh, as the others have done, I'm gonna tell you just a little bit about our programs and the policies that we implement and then launch into priorities. So um, this is an example of most of the programs that we run. Um, we have our Healthy Homes program. That's a public awareness, public education program that talks to residents about how to reduce their exposure to toxic chemicals at home. We have our hazardous waste and used oil programs, and those are all directed at sort of the downstream, you know, what do I do with my hazardous waste items when I'm done using them and used oil also. Um, our safe medicine disposal program, which you heard about, I believe, at the last meeting, um, that's an ordinance that is now an ordinance that requires uh, producers of medicine to create a stewardship program to safely dispose of that medicine. We have our antibiotics in food animals ordinance that we implement as well. That's a transparency ordinance about antibiotics. Um, our green purchasing program, our integrated pest management program, you heard about both of those. Um, electrifying landscaping equipment, that's a new program and I'm gonna talk about it in my next slide, but that is around um, electrifying the use of landscaping equipment and that's been mandated in an ordinance. Um, and I'll talk about that next. Um, our green business program and our healthy nail salon program. Those are two recognition programs. So the, the carrots, you know, how do we award, reward folks that are doing the right thing. Um, and over the past two to three years, we've started a new initiative, um, which is our toxics reduction grant program. Next slide. So over our priorities over the next one to two years, as I mentioned, we are, we will be implementing, we're the lead agency to implement the Healthier, Cleaner, Quieter Communities Act, which is also known as the Gas-Powered Landscaping Equipment Ban. And that includes the creation of incentive program for, for electric landscaping equipment. So that is, um, besides getting the city family on board, that's the next priority is figuring out um, what an incentive program will look like, how it will operate, uh, next, we want to expand collection options for large capacity lithium batteries. So these are the ones used in e-bikes, e-scooters, and other e-mobility devices. 
and increase public awareness of battery recycling safety. And finally, we hope to certify over 150 businesses in the Green Business Program, including 40 businesses in historically underrepresented communities, and maintain exists our existing rebate and prebate program, which is our very successful incentive program for green businesses. And we have seen some cuts from the state level uh, to a program that funds this program. And so it's really important for us to maintain our rebates and prebates because that informs and, and helps support the earlier goal around increasing our numbers in underrepresented communities. And that's it. Any questions? Yes. yes. Um, is there anything that your department's doing about cigarette butt litter, which is toxic hazardous waste? Charles? <laughs> We've had, our department has had, I, I, it wasn't in my team, but um, we did have a program, a, sort of like an adopt a container for the butts program. I can't really speak too much to it, but if you want to, you can. Uh, Charles Shan, Policy and Public Affairs. The um, cigarette litter abatement uh, program that we had a couple of years ago um, was actually in my team, and um, we were uh, funded through an ad back that the Board of Supervisors allocated, and that ad back um, uh, funded cigarette butt collection with, we call them butt cans, <laughs> and we uh, put them in high priority spots where a lot of cigarette butt litter occurred, and the um, uh, funding funded a pilot. The pilot concluded it was excellent results, but we didn't get subsequent funding for that, so the program doesn't exist at the moment. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I just going to mention that I know we're we're meeting uh, in about another week to talk with uh, Commissioner Yuan and, and his team to talk about legislation uh, or some sort of policy that uh, may be advancing at the state level. I think it has to be done at the state level. Um, We've looked at ordinances at a county city letter level, but it, it doesn't make it doesn't work because you can just go across county lines to purchase these, right? So in New Zealand, for example, they've banned cigarette sales completely to people under a certain age, so they'll never be able to buy cigarettes again. So that's one thing. Filters, they don't actually filter anything. Potentially, we could ban the filters, which is I think what we're looking to do. But I mean, I think there's other things we could do as, as far as, like, the awareness. I mean, policy is so difficult. Like, littering is already against the law, so how do you say, like, oh, don't litter your cigarette butts? But maybe awareness is better. Maybe if more smokers understood the toxic chemicals that are in the cigarette butts and the, the plastics that are in them, maybe they'll change their behavior. I mean, but the butt cans do help, I think, because I think a lot of smokers will do the right thing if it's convenient enough. The problem is there's still a handful of people who's habits just to throw them on the ground. So how do we reach those people and change their habits? I don't know. So happy to work with you guys to try to figure it out. Yeah, and we're, we're happy to bring this back to the, the commission after our conversation to talk about any next steps there. Comments or questions? All right, thank you, Polly. Thank you. I believe we're on to zero waste now. Hello, Jack. <laughs> Good evening, commissioners. My pleasure to join you. I'm Jack Macy, the Zero Waste Program Manager. Nice to see some new faces. Uh, so the Zero Waste Program is really its, its overall mission is to help achieve the city's zero waste goal. And we're particularly focused on our 2030 targets of reducing generation by 15% and disposal by 50%. Next slide, please. Through a variety of means. 
And one of the big areas that we're focused on is, is implementing and helping improve compliance on a number of state and local uh, mandates, at least four state uh, legislation and ha half a dozen local ordinances, including mandatory recycling and composting, refuse separation, construction and demolition, debris recovery, uh, edible food, uh, and checkout bags and foodware ordinance. And then I've got a list here on the slide of sort of some of the key initiatives beyond just the ordinance compliance. So we, we have had a, a number of efforts to help around reducing food waste prevention and food donation. We have, uh, we're working around reuse and repair efforts. We've been hosting what's called fix-it clinics that you, some of you may have heard about. We have a virtual warehouse that's for city government agencies. We uh, have helped support a building material reuse art in the Bayview Hunters area at 701 Amador. We have uh, been providing uh, assistance and grants to businesses to switch from non-reusable to reusable foodware. Uh, we have, uh, we participate in, uh, environmentally pers preferred purchasing is another way of saying uh, green purchasing, working on contracts. We uh, have a new mobile pilot for container value redemption. And we have a long-standing uh, zero waste grant program. So some of the examples, our staff's organized by sectors, so we, staff generally tends to focus on residential, city government, commercial, or construction and demolition debris. Next slide. So our top priorities that we're really thinking of, and kind of in the lens of new initiatives on top of all of that that you just heard, uh, includes uh, developing and adopting a kind of a deconstruction, which is a term to take a building apart so that you, we can maximize the ability to reuse those materials, a deconstruction and reuse ordinance that will help advance recovering building materials, which is actually the biggest component of what goes into the landfill. Uh, and uh, secondly, we want to uh, adopt and implement, this is actually on a faster timeline, hopefully we can have, see this passed in early 2024, an ordinance that would require uh, the food establishments to use reusable foodware on site, for example, uh, large venues using reusable cup systems, uh, uh, residents, people bringing it, being able to bring their reusable cups to re restaurants, for example. And then thirdly, uh, as well as we are doing with our source separated programs, we're still seeing a lot of food scraps compostables, recyclables, and trash, and to meet our 2030 targets, we really need to move towards being able to process, sort that trash stream. And there, those technologies have been advancing, and there are some promising facilities and opportunities. So we want to, we want to do a test this spring in the coming months, and then develop a plan that would have to get rate funding. So and hopefully in the next year to two, we would actually have a long-term plan for that. And finally, uh, we are going to be switching to a new provider doing refuse collection for city agencies. They won in a competitive bid that would be no longer Recology but Allied. And that new contract goes into effect next July, and there's a lot of work making that transition and managing that contract. So those are our top four uh, priorities. Any questions? Not a question, but um, a few years ago, the commission got to go to the Recology plant and actually see 
everything in motion, how the glass separates out and how the yeah. puff of air gets the aluminum cans to the right place. And it was really amazing. And we've had a lot of, we've had some new commissioners since then. It'd be nice to do another visit sometime. I think that is a great idea, Commissioner. I would be happy to help uh, arrange that. Yeah, I think it's, it's a sight to behold. Uh, to see those 500 tons of Bluebin materials coming in and getting sorted into many products for the market. Yeah, um, yeah. thank you for your work. This is definitely up my alley, especially with the reusable materials. I know you guys have been working with reusable SF and Ava Holman, I believe. That's right. Uh, and there's some new policy that's being rolled out and cited about. But is there more of a push to, like, again, we're talking about priorities, to really prioritize that because, you know, you think about, all the single-use materials that we use as a city, even within the government or large places like Chase Center or Moscone, um, let alone the mom and pops. Like, you know, what, what are we doing here, basically? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you support that top priority. And uh, we've actually, so we've been working with the Reusable SF Coalition for a long time, and it's great having that group. Um, we've had now in place. Uh, for about a year, and we've just kind of expanded this fiscal year, and that assistance program that I referred to, where you know we're we're spending upwards of two hundred thousand dollars a year providing assistance and a lot of grants, you know, in the range of three to seven hundred dollars uh, per restaurant to help them buy cover the upfront cost of switching to reusables. And then you mentioned some big venues like. Uh, Chase and the Giants, we've been talking with them and sort of got them on board to switching over to these reusable cups. So there are these companies that are providing reusable cup systems, and that's why that's part of the policy that we hope the Board of Supervisors will pass uh, in the coming months, and then we would be working to implement that going forward. I hope so, too. I mean, I think I, my personal belief is like the going top down instead of the mom and pops is the way to go. You know, with the mom and pops, maybe there is some kind of deposit system that would make it, you know, feasible. But I think even if you just focus on, you know, our government agencies, the big users, and then SFUSD, like, that would be, that'd be huge. So, I mean, yeah. I'd like to see something standardized, especially, like, to-go containers. You know, we should always have, like, the standard SF 16-ounce tumbler, right? And it's like, and then someone's working on technology with the, that group with the RFID tag that you could just throw it in the trash or the recycling bin goes through Ecology or um, Allied, and then they can just pull it off of the line with some of that technology. So Yeah, the, the reusable cup systems, there's a couple of companies, uh, R Cup and Turn, for example, you know, they have like the RFID coded cups, and they'll actually have separate collection bins. Once it gets mixed into a, a larger stream of recycling or something, it's going to be harder to separate that out. So the idea is to really keep that separate. And there have been some promising companies' initiatives on the to-go space. But it hasn't, we're not quite at the point uh, scale-wise to require that across the city. So we are focused on the large venues to implement that, as you said. I think that's great. Yeah. yeah. I'd like yeah. to talk more. So. <laughs> <laughs> great. We're happy to talk to you further about thank that. Ryan, thank Any you. Any other questions? Yeah. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. I'm Shreda Mehta. I'm the manager of the Community Partnerships and Engagement Program at the department, uh, also known as the Outreach Program. Our program improves accessibility, 
and increases awareness of the department's policies and programs by centering racial and social equity in our strategies. Next slide, please. Our program establishes meaningful partnerships with community-based organizations, city departments, and other groups. We provide face-to-face -face outreach to the public, including environmental education to residents, businesses, youth, and workers. And we oversee the department's traditional communications, such as our web, uh, graphic design, and social media. Next slide, please. So our uh, top priorities over the next couple years include creating a diverse pool of community partners that the department can fund to conduct deeper engagement across all of our programs. To that end, we'll be releasing a request for qualifications, or RFQ, and advertising it broadly so that the department has a vehicle to fund our partners. We will be partnering with the San Francisco Unified School District and community partners on environmental education projects, um, including piloting a fellowship program, hosting a large youth event, and conducting workshops for principals and students. And we'll be leading innovative, we'll continue to lead innovative campaigns that include community partners and promote language accessibility. A few examples you've heard in um, previous presentations uh, include of uh, upcoming campaigns include food waste reduction, safe battery disposal, and healthy nail salons. Um, and then we'll, we'll also continue to implement our department's racial equity action plan and build our capacity to apply a racial and social equity lens to all of our policies and programs. Thank you. Any questions? Any questions? For the outreach portion, do you have like volunteer programs? Because I know Recology has like zero waste champions and they try to get volunteers to help the outreach. Do you have anything set up like that? We don't have something set up, but that's definitely something that we are looking at um, starting up again. We, we did in the past have a volunteer program, but we're um, interested in getting that going again. I'm interested in helping you. Great. <laughs> yeah, you. this is a great place, again, to talk about and center youth empowerment. Um, and I love that you're driving into some of those youth events and such. Um, the availability to try and create internships for youth and have them learn more about this department and have them placed in, in places that are critical and strategic for, for their development is really key. So thank you for this. Thank you. All right, thank you. Now we're on to administration. Great, thank you. And thanks to the commission for allowing me to present remotely today. I have a family emergency issue, so I'm grateful to have the technology option. Um, the administration team provides technical support to department staff, including administrative assistance related to budget and finance, accounting, information technology, grant and contract administration, office management, and human resources. Um, next slide. So um, I just relist the teams here. Um, we've got managers over budget and finance, accounting, and contract and grant administration, and then the other functions um, all within um, those three respective stacks. Um, so I'm ready to go ahead and talk about the three top priorities for me um, and my team. Next slide. Um, so for number one, um, 
support program teams to effectively and efficiently meet programmatic goals and navigate city processes in accordance with complex city requirements. So this for me is really an acknowledgement of how challenging it can be at times to um, move um, grants, contracts, or other work through the city. And so I'm hoping to do everything I can so that my team is able to support everyone getting their work done um, without feeling bottlenecked and delayed or stuck without a solution. So I'm really eager to um, move that piece forward. Um, for number two, demonstrate stewardship of city dollars by strengthening internal controls and work to strategically increase departmental value to the city family and to the public. So we want to demonstrate just how effective we can be and how much return we can get when the city and other external funders invest in us. Um, for number three, continue emphasis on prompt hiring, ensure appropriate use of job classes, and increase usage of permanent civil service positions whenever possible. So we really want our staff to be um, treated respectfully and um, given um, the right sort of opportunities. And we think that's super important to be able to attract the candidates that we need for openings when they occur. Um, so we'll continue to work closely with the Department of Human Resources. They are hiring a new um, consultant that will be working with us, hopefully on board in the next few weeks. It's been just slightly delayed, but we're hoping that um, they'll get that final offer signed and sealed. So um, with that, I'm ready for any questions you may have for me. I don't see any questions, so thank you. We'll move on then. Super. Policy and Public Affairs with Charles. Thank you, Commissioners. Charles Sheehan, Policy and Public Affairs. Um, like my colleague Leo um, illustrated, the Policy and Public Affairs team is kind of set up to make sure that the program teams succeed and to make sure the Commission succeeds. And so we are very much kind of a service function for uh, the Department and for the Commission. Next slide. And I'll walk you through some of the things that we do to make sure that everyone succeeds. Um, starting with Commission Affairs, um, that sits kind of uh, on my team. And so preparing the meetings, Kyle's obviously point for that, um, making sure we're transitioning from virtual to not virtual, um, hosting special meetings, that's all done to make sure that uh, the Commission has a voice and is heard. Um, for the policies we talk about, we work with the program teams to develop those policies every step of the way and to make sure that when they get to the board, they can get passed. Um, intergovernmental relations, we are talking to the board. We're talking to the mayor's office. We're talking to other departments. We're making sure that everyone is, is on the same page. Um, press relations, that's both proactive outreach to the press and also reacting to the press. We kind of cover all that and make sure that everyone is set up to uh, Put our best for put our best face and our best policy forward. Incoming and outgoing grants never been more important than now when there is so much money coming from the federal government on environmental issues. And of course, finally, making sure that for ethics compliance, everyone is educated. It's easy and it's as accessible as possible. We do our best. And then our program, our priorities for the year. Um, I talked about uh, grants. Uh, again, there's just a lot of funding out there, and we want to make sure that we maximize what we are bringing here to the city to implement all of our environmental uh, objectives. Um, we also want to make sure that with our resources, especially with these new grant resources we're winning, that we're then turning that money around and doing um, grant making to the community, bringing in CBOs from the community, targeting um, 
certain neighborhoods. And then for our third um, uh, priority, again, that's back to press. Um, and with all these policies that we're talking about, with the reuse policy that we're hoping to um, pass shortly, with all these grants that then help fund programs for our policies, it's an opportunity to talk to the press, talk to an audience about these programs and the good work that we're doing and why they are important. So we're prioritizing that as well. I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you, Charles. Yeah. All right. That, that concludes our item. All right. Um, any other overarching comments or concerns? Presentations and succinct and hitting all the highlights on the priorities of the department. That's very helpful. I agree. With that, let's go to public comment then. Are there any members of the public joining us this evening who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. All right, next item please. Thank you to all the presenters who came tonight. The next item is item nine, director's report. The speaker is Tyrone Chu, director. This item is for discussion. All right, uh, commissioners, I will keep this brief. Uh, just a note that you received some supplemental documentation. Uh, one was our refuse separation and compliance ordinance report that we submitted to the board in September. Um, and we plan to include this and other kind of reports uh, to the board and other city departments in a director's report going forward just for your information. Uh, the second is we provided information about a climate retreat that we held at the Southeast Community Center. Um, this was an opportunity from all of the various staff that work in our multiple departments that, that focus on sustainability. Uh, this is a great retreat for all of them to get together and just talk about how they move the work forward and some of the barriers and pain points they're each experiencing. Uh, I did wanna give an update on the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperative event. Um, so there were a number of events, obviously you've all read about it in the, in the press, so no, no need to highlight all the things that happened. But as far as how our department was involved, uh, we definitely participated in, in a few conversations on the outside, uh, focusing on a just transition and a sustainable net zero future. And we also collaborated with our climate technology companies, as I mentioned we would, in hosting tours of those companies uh, for the delegates and media that were here. Uh, the next update is just a few grants that have come in between our last presentation uh, to the commission. Uh, one, you heard about the e-bike expansion uh, that Hannah mentioned, and so that was a grant we received from the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, expanding on our work and grant that we got from the California Energy Commission. So again, it's scaling our work uh, to provide more impact. Uh, we expect a release to be sent out from the mayor's office in just another day or two. Uh, and then the second is related to what you heard about uh, from Pauli, uh, related to our always gas-powered landscape equipment ban, or that long title that Polly mentioned. Uh, so we did uh, thankfully get some grant funding uh, from the Healthy Babies and Bright Futures uh, grant process. And so we, we received a limited amount of money that's gonna help us create an incentive program that Polly talked about and kind of get our program underway and start that transition here in San Francisco. Uh, and then finally, uh, I'll just mention uh, there will be an announcement coming out probably from the mayor in the coming days uh, about the second uh, San Francisco Climate Week, which is scheduled between April 21st through 27th. Uh, this is an event being organized by Climate Base, which is a uh, kind of a job, climate job company located here in San Francisco. And so 
this past year, they held their first ever uh, climate week. There's a New York City climate week that happens every single year that's been going on for many years. This year was our first kind of like pilot, if you will, to see what the interest would be. Uh, every event was oversubscribed. And so this year, we're going to be deeply partnering with them on how do we expand this, make it more accessible to even mo more parts of the city. Uh, and so we're looking forward to that partnership. And so that should be announced in the coming days. And uh, we look forward to kind of sharing more information as we develop that, that uh, program. And that concludes my report. Happy to answer any questions. Hey, Director Ju, um, if there are no questions, let's go to public comment then. Are there any members of the public in the room this evening who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. Next item, please. All right, the next item is item 10, item 10, new business future agenda items. The speaker is Charles Sheehan, Chief Policy and Public Affairs Officer. This item is for discussion. Thank you, commissioners. Um, we're at the end of the year, so the next commission meeting is uh, Monday, February 5th. Um, and then prior to that, um, we have uh, our operations committee that's tentatively scheduled, I believe, for January 9th. I think we still may need to firm that up because our subcommittees are now as needed. So, so we're working on that date, and I think it's going to be January 9th. Um, for those two meetings, as a reminder, there's an ordinance governing how we present our budget to the commission, and we have to have two meetings. And so we will do that first at that operations meeting, and then we will have... Uh, the second presentation and adoption of the budget uh, at the uh, commission meeting. Um, in addition, at that commission meeting, um, we may be giving you an update on our battery collection program, always, um, always changing and evolving with the amount of batteries that are being used, both small and large in our daily lifestyle. And um, we'll be bringing our annual report to that um, commission meeting for approval as well. Probably an update potentially on um, some programs with our, our environmental education team and um, potentially an update um, or a new agreement about um, our household hazardous waste facility. So February is looking to be busy already. Um, any questions? It is a new year and so we do have to populate the commission agenda and schedule for the rest of the year and we'll be doing that over the next one to two months. But if you have suggestions, that would be helpful. So just let us know. I, I have an uh, inquiry. Have we looked at um, applying a lens of artificial intelligence across the programs and the work that's coming out of this department? I don't think we have. You know, we did a couple years ago take a look at the blockchain technology that was kind of all a buzz, and now it is artificial intelligence. That's kind of like the new technology. I'm looking at some of the program teams. That might be, that might be interesting to discuss, but we have not looked at that yet, but something to potentially discuss. Yeah. So I'd be interested in seeing you know, what you might be able to share with us, given you know, a couple, two to three months worth of investigation. I mean, I, I, it would be interesting, because AI seems to be like everyone's using it to see what they can do and how it can improve their product or their lifestyle. And so it might be interesting to see, like, here's the environment. What can an AI analysis tell us about some of our environmental work? We'll have to see. Yeah. So there's the opportunity for maybe innovation and efficiencies um, and maybe some other things. Just, just a suggestion. I think it would be quite um, beneficial. Yeah. And, and I'll just add that we are seeing, uh, especially from the the startups and the companies that are entering the climate space, like you won't be a successful kind of climate 
technology company unless you're integrating artificial intelligence into your business model. And so in every single business that's, that's coming up and operating in San Francisco, they have a component of artificial intelligence into it. I would say as a city as a whole, we're probably a little bit slower on the uptake because <laughs> I think there's a, a lot of questions out there um, that we kind of need to wrestle with, both from a regulatory standpoint, what information gets is given. But that merge is happening because we already see it even with the tools we have from Microsoft and everything's already starting to kind of integrate into our existing platforms. And so I suspect there'll be a lot of conversations just on how the city is going to use AI going forward. And then I had one more question, and I don't know whether this might have been covered before. The um, planning department that uh, has the environmental justice framework, that plan that's been adopted, has that been um, presented to this body? Yes, it has. I think once or twice. Um, I think even as recent as a couple of months ago, it was in 2023. Okay. Okay. Is there any overlap where there's consideration for um, helping to support execution of the initiatives or the outreach segment, for instance? I think we were involved in the planning, and we may be assisting them just through collaboration and some of the execution and implementation, but we were, we were definitely involved, which is why they came to the commission to get some feedback. Okay. Seeing no other questions or comments from commissioners, thanks, Charles. Yeah. Uh, we'll go to public comment on this item, too. Are there any members of the public in the room this evening who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. All right, next item. All right, the next item is item 11, general public comment. Members of the public may address the commission on matters that are within the commission's jurisdiction and are not on today's agenda. Are there any members of the public who wish to comment on item 11, general public comment? And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. All right, I believe we're at our final item. All right, the next item is item 12, adjournment. The meeting is adjourned. The time is 6.58 p.m. Thank you for joining us, and happy holidays. Good night, everybody.